This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by Newcom, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap, a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Newcom, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on newcom.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show veteran, former contractor, and close protection expert, Justin Keating. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics, from his journey into the military his unique 9-11 story, his deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, the world of contracting, working for the CIA, close protection, jiu-jitsu, 
writing, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 900 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Justin Keating. Enjoy. Well, Justin, I want to start by saying firstly, thank you to Isabel Ramirez from uh, CrossFit Iron Legion or Iron Legion Strength and Conditioning for introducing us. And secondly, I want to welcome you onto the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you. What a pleasure to be here. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? So I am in a little town called Pea Ridge, Arkansas. It's up in the northwest corner of the state. Uh, We call it Walmart country. The uh, Walmart headquarters is here. So now, is that I heard you talking about doing um, working with them? We'll get to that later. But I mean, that must have been quite jarring the role that you had during COVID. But we'll save that story for a minute. But is that yeah. where Walmart was founded then in Arkansas? Yes, it was. And what impact did the creation of that absolute, you know, monster of a corporation have on <laughs> your little area in Arkansas? Um. It is nothing moves around here without their say so. I will say that. Uh, it, but in a positive manner, they do a lot for the communities around here. They they um, they have really like built up a lot of um, uh, just undeveloped areas that have now developed, and they've brought in. I mean, there's restaurants. We have big malls now. I mean, I want to say there was an estimated around like 500 people every three weeks or a month we're moving here to northwest arkansas and um the some of the walton grandkids have built hands down the world's best mountain bike trails in basically everywhere they call this the aspen of mountain biking essentially um i mean people from all over the world are coming here to ride so i mean they've done a lot for this this community here so now, just playing devil's advocate, for example, Disney, when they first went to Orlando, the philosophy that was everyone's kind of love of the films and now creating mm-hmm. you know, these parks where people can be immersed um, at their inception, I think was a beautiful thing. And it drew a lot of people. So Orlando is what it is now because of that. And then ultimately other theme mm-hmm. parks coming in. But there's now, and I'm just specifically talking about Disney, there's a point where there was a lot of overreach and maybe it's mm-hmm. morphed from the original concept. You know, if you have all the you know, job creation people are coming towards, is there any downside of maybe, you know, of a, of a part of Arkansas that was oh. one way? Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, uh, just alone with the traffic, traffic has gone through the roof, uh, you know, for a little small area um housing prices have gone up we have a housing shortage here actually 
and not a lot of uh, public land for these guys to, or land to buy up to build on. Um, so they're impeding into a lot of the farmers communities that used to be around here and stuff. I mean, and then, and then to be expected with growth the way it is, uh, I would say we do have a lot of people from other states that are, I want to sort of, I'll just say it, a little more oppressive than uh, conservative politics um, are moving here. And they slowly kind of change the atmosphere a little bit, you know, and so, I mean, there's a, there's a give and take, there's pros and cons of it all. So, uh, I'd say my biggest complaint is the damn traffic. So <laughs> it's funny as I sit here now, there's a truck across the street from my house where my neighbors has a sticker on the back that says, don't New York, my Florida. So yeah, I think that's, right. that's, <laughs> I think they agree with you that's on that. What it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Yeah, so grew up in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Um, lived there most of my childhood through the Alpha 80s. Uh, I have two half-brothers. I never met my real biological father. Uh, my stepdad um, had adopted me when I was real young. Um, so I had his last name, and then I fast forward real quick. I changed it later on uh, to go back to my birth name, which is the current name I have. I sense a childhood trauma story coming. Yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a long that that's a whole podcast for like a psych podcast. But uh, <laughs> but no, I grew up in Kansas City, and then uh, we briefly moved to St. Louis for a bit, uh, and then. So I got transferred down here to Arkansas. We've been here since I want to say roughly 1991. Uh, so I'm pretty much from Arkansas at this point. Uh, grew up here just playing sports. Soccer is my big sport growing up. Um, and then kind of what's weird is I, I got jumped in seventh grade. Uh, I got beat up real bad and then bullied all through junior high and most of high school. And my mom wanted me to basically learn how to defend myself. So the only thing we had around here was uh, Taekwondo. So she put me in Taekwondo. And uh, about three years of that, after, you know, getting to my black belt level, I was like, okay, yeah, man, I'm good. I can, I can fight back, you know? And <laughs> so, but never actually had to use it, but uh, that's a story for another time. But um, no, I graduated high school and then just kind of worked some odd jobs here and there. Um, but right after high school, I decided to join the U S army. Um, I had always had this idea of military in my life. I, I mean, I even have a picture of me when I was probably about seven years old, literally holding a toy AK 47. Um, so it's kind of like ingrained in my mind for the, my, like my whole life. Like everything I did as a child, uh, prepared me for the military. Uh, so 18 comes around. Um, I, the only thing I really knew about that time was, uh, green berets and Navy field. That's the only thing I really knew about. And I was like, man, I don't know if I want to go to the Navy. Doesn't sound all that cool. I was like, oh, let's go to the army. Uh, so I get to Fort Benning, Georgia, and I get stuck at their, uh, what they call the reception station, which is called the 30th AG. Uh, they're like admin processing place. And I literally was stuck there for almost two months. I didn't get 
picked up by a training company and I was like, man, you know what? This is, this is the military. I'm like, screw this. I'm out. I want to go home. Send me home. I quit basically. And so they sent me home with like an uncharacterized discharge. And then uh, about two years after it just kind of fell off my record. But uh, that when I quit on the military, it just kind of ate at me and ate at me internally. What the hell? Like, why did I do that? You know, like, that was like my shot. And I was like, man, I may never get another shot to go back and fix that, you know, or serve. And then 9-11 happened. And I watched the second plane hit the tower. And I literally got in my car. I drive straight to the recruiting office. And I had full plans on going back into the Army and fixing that issue of quitting on them. Uh, but the only office that was open happened to be the Marine Corps office. And so I walk in and I see a friend of mine from high school. He's a recruiter there. And I was like, Hey man, what's up? And he goes, Oh, nothing. Can you believe all this stuff? I know it's crazy. He goes, what are you doing here? I was like, well, man, I was going to go in the army. And he goes, Oh, hell no. Come over here and talk to us. So he, uh, got me signed up. Literally I swore in later on that afternoon. And then about two and a half, I want to say three weeks later, I was in boot camp in San Diego. And, uh, yeah. So I want to go back firstly to the bullying. Um, I mean, obviously we're gonna we're gonna talk a long time about your career, but but pulling out some of these, and we will kind of you know visit other areas too. What was it in seventh grade that you were being picked on about? Uh, it wasn't anything in particular. Uh, honestly, how it all started was over a girl. <laughs> um, the girl that I had uh, a crush on or had been, had been my brief girlfriend for a bit uh, broke up with me to be with this guy. And this guy was uh, kind of a high school failure. Um, he got kicked back in the system constantly. Um, he was a ninth grader, but was supposed to be a, a sophomore in high school. And so he uh, just real rough around the edges, kind of a product of society almost. Uh, his parents were kind of criminals, been in, in and out of jail for life, you know, it's kind of a, a real sad story. But um, he decided, uh, yeah, I'm not, I don't want competition or anything. And so he jumped me after I was walking out of a geometry class. And uh, what's wild is that uh, my teacher at the time, Mrs. Murphy, she was a former Marine herself, um, ended up pushing me down and getting the guy away from me. But, but he beat me up pretty bad. And then uh, the, the bullying and the tormenting kind of just came from him just messing with me mentally, um, saying dumb things like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I hope you burn alive. And, you know, just weird, weird shit. And uh, it just kind of got under my skin and I just never wanted to go back to school. And uh, my mom was like, man, we got to do something. What, you know, we got to give him confidence. I had no confidence at the time, you know. And uh, size-wise, I was always smaller than the rest of my classmates. I kind of hit my growth spurt a little bit later. But, uh, but yeah, it was just more of a mental torture uh, the guy put on me and just kind of just messed with me. Kind of weird psychological warfare almost, uh, which technically helped me prepare for combat. So I was like, when I was in combat, I was like, oh, this is nothing. <laughs> Mentally <laughs> speaking, at least. <laughs> But no, so kind of busted, busting my chops all the time, you know. And I was just like, man, I can't. What am I? Am I going to go to school and live in fear the rest of my life, or what am I going to do? You know. So, 
Well, the reason I asked that is I was very small. I had my growth spurt when I was 18. And my son now is 16 and he's almost the same height as me. And I, I've told him, you know, be prepared. And then he shut up and I'm like, okay, well, never mind then. <laughs> he's much yeah. taller than I was. <laughs> but I never really got picked on. I was a bit of a smart ass. But when I got to, God, it was probably 18-ish. Um, mm-hmm. I was dating a girl and she had this super jealous ex-boyfriend. And when I go clubbing, it he would come on over and try and start a fight and he'd literally always have you know three or four blokes with him as well and i'd always be like oh my god no i don't want to fight you you're so tough i'm so weak and then he just walk away and i was like wow that was fucking easy um yeah but <laughs> i did martial arts but it was taekwondo as you and i both know that you know it looks great on film it's great to watch but in the reality of you know, of life tip tap kicks to the face that we're we're taught because we're doing the sport taekwondo you're not even taught to hit hard really um, you know, is not that effective on the street. But I won a tournament, a local tournament, and it made the paper. And I was in the paper. And I swear, overnight, these guys went from in my face to just leaving me alone, even being nice. Yeah. And I'm like, how pathetic is that? I am no, I'm not that tough. And it's purely this facade of, you know, whether you are weak, therefore a coward, you know, a bully can mm-hmm. pick on you because they think you're not going to be able to fight back. Now you add some perceived resistance and all of a sudden they don't want to know about him. Yeah, there's uh, uh, what's that that movie? Remember the movie The Substitute uh, with Colin Barringer? I don't know if you ever saw that. The one where he's got a baseball bat in his hand on the front cover. Yeah, yeah, and he's at the school. Uh, there's a quote in that movie from the principal that says, uh, "Power perceived is power achieved." And I've always th- let that quote stuck in my head, and that's what Taekwondo always like. I felt like it was, you know, it's like it achieved this it was perceived as this powerful thing, which don't get me wrong. It's great discipline for kids. You know, I think, I think it helps a lot of people, but definitely not a fighting art by any means. Um, you know, so. <laughs> yeah. I literally won national titles in Taekwondo at my weight, at my belt, you know, not, you know, of, of the entire continent, you know, or anything like that. But, um, but then I had this journey. I think I went to, was it boxing next and got murdered and then started learning boxing. Then went to Muay Thai with my picking my leg up and just got swept and kicked and leg kicked. And, yeah. you know, and then it was again, then jujitsu. And it's, it's this constant journey of humility. But yeah, mm-hmm. as you said, you know, it absolutely has its place. But I think with any martial arts, this is what Bruce Lee was so good at, is you've got to understand the limitations as well. Like, where does this work and where, you know, where is this not going to work? For sure. And, you know, it's funny, like when I got out of the Marine Corps, I'd been, I'd done, you know, Marine Corps martial arts and stuff of that nature. And then I like had a friend of mine get me into MMA, which we'll go into the backstory on that here in a little bit. Uh, but uh, when I got there, I was like, oh, man, this is this is awesome. Like, I could ball these guys up because, you know, I'd done Wanda, like a Marine Corps, you know, like I can do this. And then I had some little 125 pound Brazilian black belt just ball me up in a pretzel and completely humiliate me and i'm just like okay this is different <laughs> you know this is this is a much different world than just trying to kick someone and jump back as fast as possible so uh yeah it definitely opened up my eyes and i was like okay this is something i gotta i gotta explore this a lot more so i think this is more street applicable so absolutely well, we t- said that we were going to talk about, you know, your mental health story as we progress through the military. One 
really important part of anyone's mental health journey when they're talking about it as an adult is what happened before we put the uniform on. I don't think it gets the, I think the sleep deprivation, the organizational stress of betrayal and childhood trauma, the three things that are kind of left out of the, you know, whether it's post-traumatic stress disorder, whatever it is in first responders, in veterans, you know, and we're like, oh, well, you were in Ramadi, for example, that must be mm-hmm. why you're struggling. Well, you had 18 years before you ever put the uniform on. Yeah. So you kind of said it was for another podcast, but if you want, let's let's visit that. As you are growing up, you know, you you had a father you didn't know, so there's obviously an element of abandonment there. This other person is put in your life. With this mature lens that you have now looking back, what were the compounding elements to some of the mental health struggles you had later in life? I mean, it was the narcissism I had to deal with, with, with from this individual. Um, you know, like I, I will say, like, I mean, he, he put a roof over our heads. He put food on our table, clothes on our backs. I, you know, I do appreciate some of the things that the man did for uh, my mom and I, and then the, my, my brothers later on, but it, it's, it was the constant, uh, gaslighting that I had to deal with growing up. Um, one minute screaming at me or telling me I'm a bad person, you know, and then the next minute, like, oh, let's, hey, let's love and hug. And, you know, it's just this whiplash back and forth, you know, for like, I want to say a good 19, 20 years of that. Just constantly never seeing eye to eye, never getting along, um, you know, and then, and then it lasted all up. I mean, God, it lasted all up until about a year ago or almost a year ago when my mom passed. Um, just, just the constant every now and then it was a little dick here and there, you know, I had to deal with. And then, then I get in the military, you know, and then they just completely rewire the brain to fit their mold, you know, and then, uh, you know, I see my, I do my combat tours and come out and I think it's all about the war stress, you know, when it's, then I completely didn't even think like, Oh, maybe some of this stuff is from childhood, you know? And, you know, great at my mom and, you know, my mom loved her to death, but, she grew up poor. Um, they grew up, you know, not knowing when their next meal is going to be, when their next, where their next home is, et cetera. Uh, so there was a lot of depression, childhood depression from her that I think, you know, carried over to me, uh, generationally speaking. And, you know, and that happens a lot. And, you know, it's funny. I was talking to a good friend of mine the other day. He's, uh, uh, he'd be a good uh, guest to have on here, the combat coach, uh, my buddy Casey. And uh, he does a lot of psychological or psychology and then coaching for vets. But uh, him and I were talking one day and we we're talking about the subject about how the majority of us that joined the military, if you look at them, a lot of them have had mommy and daddy issues prior, uh, some sort of broken childhood or they were in trouble with the law or something. You know, there's always there's that common denominator of all of us. We're lost children looking for a father, looking for a mother, et cetera. So, you know, I think dealing with a lot of that actually helped me be more prepared for the military because I was like, when I'm being gaslighted by a drill instructor, I'm just like, oh, this is, this is, this is easy. <laughs> I've been down this road before. So, you know? I know this game. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, I'll play your game. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no, I, I think it, I, I try to now I try to look at it as like it's a positive. It shapes kind of like who I don't want to be and who I actually want to be as a person. So 
Well, you hit on an interesting topic that a lot of people don't identify, which is that multi-generational trauma. And I'd love to see what your stepdad's upbringing was like, because it sounds like there was an element of basically bipolar, you know, highs and lows. Very oh, extreme. very. Yeah, very, very similar. Um, they grew up fairly wealthy. Um, uh, my Nana was very strict, very stern, very um, not very loving and caring, not very nurturing. So I think that's where a lot of that stems from with him. Um, and, you know, his dad, God rest his soul, my pop, he was at war two vet, so he had his own trauma that he had dealt with and stuff. Um, I mean, he was deployed for almost four years straight in Europe, uh, never, you know, wrote home, but never really got to go home. And so, you know, dealing with that kind of trauma, I'm sure wasn't the greatest either. So, and then like my Nana grew up in during the great depression. And so she had that trauma in her. And so, you know, that carries over and over and over and over and so on and so on. So I think that's, that's where a lot of his stems from, maybe insecurities as well. So I think a lot of people's anxiety and stuff stems from, well, sorry, let me take that back. I think a lot of narcissism stems from insecurity. Absolutely. I just interviewed uh, two Iwo Jima vets in Dallas last week. And uh, I kind of... Uh, present it like i was talking to them before we, we actually went up there and started recording and i was saying you know that that we call them the, the greatest generation and because that's what they were however we also tell this fairy tale that they just came back and they were all fine they rolled their sleeves up and off they went and yet so many people when i talk to them that are our age um you know roughly our age uh granddad was not all right Granddad was a drunk. Yeah. Granddad was abusive. Granddad, you know, and I was saying everyone's, but there were a lot of people that struggled and they didn't have that outlet. And even these two men, you know, the inability to really revisit for one of them, he didn't just didn't want to talk about it and by no means pressure in him, but it was just, it was mm -hmm. still freaking lockdown tight. Another one, Don, who was on Sean Ryan's show as well, was very open about alcoholism for the first 11, 12 years. So, we know we almost do that. Well, it's 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 almost too late now because we've only got a few of them left. But we did a, a big disservice because we were like, well, we're all struggling, but you guys are okay. Why are you okay? Rather than going, are you okay? You know. And I've had another amazing guy, Frank Wright, who's also an Iwo Jima. He was wounded, and he wrote a book on PTSD. And he's ninety eight now, ninety nine. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the voice that we need—the voice of the yeah, greatest sure. generation saying. You're fucking right. It messed us up. <laughs> Did mm -hmm. you see what we had to yeah. do? Those are the voices that we need to hear, I think, to, to reframe that fairy tale. For sure. And I think it was just so taboo of a subject to talk about back then because I think it was more along the lines of, uh, hey, don't feel sorry for yourself. Just get back to work. You know, I think that's essentially where that came from. And then everybody thought, oh, well, they made it through war. They're fine. You know, like, well, no, they just suppressed it. Because that was the way they were raised. They were raised not to be, not to feel sorry for themselves. They were raised to just get back to work. Nobody cares. Work harder. Keep going, you know? So, yeah, exactly. Now, the other thing that you hit on was about so many of us have issues and it's true i think the uh mm -hmm. the aces score which is uh, acute childhood experiences i think it stands for mm -hmm. all of us in uniform are off the charts most you know overall oh, yeah. in general and it makes perfect sense because 
if you've had that and hopefully you've even been able to process it because to me that then becomes a strength that becomes resilience if you've been through suffering and trauma and you've navigated it if we haven't obviously it can cause problems later and if you have well even better but it's funny when you look at the hiring standards especially in my profession where you've got to be a fucking altar boy on paper and it's like well wait a second you know you 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 want me to run into burning buildings and cut dead children out of cars but never have a speeding ticket or tried any illicit drugs whatsoever. There's, yeah. there's, there's a bit of a disconnect here. Maybe we need to revisit. Oh, it's like everybody I ever worked with in the government as a contractor or, yeah. or worked around that were staff officers and stuff uh, or federal employees. It's like they all have some sort of like hidden layer that never came out until later on. You know, it's like they had that perfect resume, that perfect fairy tale position that they were looking for. And then later on, the truth comes out. I mean, you wouldn't believe how many sociopaths I've ever been around. <laughs> you know, that are probably probably never diagnosed, but they're there. You know, but they're great people. You know, they're great at their job. They do what they do. Um, but yeah, it's, it's we all have this underlying issue that nobody really cares to get down to the root problem, root cause of why we have trauma, why we have all this stuff. You know, a lot of it stems from our childhood. So, absolutely. Well, you talked about going into the army you know, being stuck in limbo, coming out, and then 9-11 happens. Talk to me about that day through your eyes as a young man. Yeah, so I was at home asleep, and a friend of mine from high school, he was a uh, a young lieutenant in the Army, uh, but he was stationed over in Europe, and I got a phone call from him, and he said, hey, man, turn on TV. Um, he goes, I think America's under attack. And I said, what? So I turn it on, and it's all over the news everywhere. And all I see was possible bombing World Trade Center. And I was just like, oh, man, that's something about the anniversary from the previous one when they tried to bomb the basement. And then that's when I saw the second plane hit. And literally watched it live on TV. And I was just like, oh, shit, this is different. And I'd already known about terrorism from reading books and stuff about Vietnam and things of that nature. And so I was like, okay, this is different. This this ain't no accident. This is no bombing. This is no special on, you know, previous incidents that have happened there. Um, I'm like, oh shit, this is real. And it just became clear to me in my mind and my it was like spoke to me loud, like, go. You gotta go. This is your fight. This is your time, go. And so that's when I was like, I just beelined it straight to the recruiting office and all the ring cord like okay here we go let's do this you know i was like what better way to fix my problem of quitting than to go try to do the hardest at the time where i thought it was the hardest boot camp known to man you know the hardest training i could get um so i think it was fate more than anything and i funny i don't really believe in fate but at times i think um the weird spiritual world speaks to us and says hey wake up this is this is your chance come come look at this come try this so absolutely yeah felt uh well watching it though i felt empty i was like man this is how's this happening to us why why how is this not prevented you know and then um like man i need to fully understand this let's go let's go do the military let's get in fight um that was my goal it was just fight 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 i'd scored real high on the ASVAB, and they're like you sure you don't want to go do something else i was like nah put me in infantry man let's go um, I just, I just had this like internal drive, just telling me like, if you don't do this, you're 
probably going to end up killing yourself later on because you of regret. Um, and so I'm just like, man, I got to go do this. And plus, I had a lot of pride in my country. I loved it. I loved the United States, you know, and I'm the greatest nation on earth, you know, and um, still kind of feel that way in a way. Uh, but it's just, I don't know, man. I just felt very patriotic that day. Very, very like I, I needed to go do this. I needed to go fight. I needed to put my part in. So kind of, kind of like our, you know, the greatest generation we're talking about. You know, they they stepped up and they did their part. Absolutely, it was interesting. You just made the comment. I still feel that way today, and I think this is. I don't know if I'm alone in this conversation with this kind of perspective, but I feel like at least the last eight years we've been just kind of cringing because we're going to have to choose from the lesser of two evils again every four yep. years knowing mm-hmm. the incredible leaders that you know we've all served alongside it's it breaks my heart because this is a beautiful incredible country but i feel like the way that we're presented some of these people that are going to represent the entire nation domestically and internationally that's really what we struggle with i think we're we're an amazing country and i think that most people love each other you know all colors creeds religions you know genders sexes etc but um yeah this is why i mean it's it's january we're one month away from the fucking circus again and it's like no no one i'm excited about i mean robert kennedy i'm 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 curious to see where that goes but i mean aside from Mm -hmm. that we got we got people we've already had that were shit so (laughs) like 330 million people for fuck's sake can we get some good people please yeah, and what's sad is like when you look at it, I, I, I don't think America is alone in that struggle. Um, I mean, look at what's going on in Ireland. Look what's going on in, in the UK too, you know, and other countries in Europe and stuff. You know, they're, they're dealing with the same kind of issue with uh, uh, the political elite just, you know, going along with their party and their party only. And it's usually a one or two party system. Um, and it's sad because we do have extremely great leaders in this world. And yet they don't want to, they don't want to step up because they know what kind of shit show it is to deal with it. You know, um, you know, I love her or hate him, but you know, Trump actually kind of made this quote about, uh, and I'm like screwing it up, but, uh, he's like, you know, I didn't need to do this because I, I he's like, I had a happy life, you know, he's like, but I wanted to do this to help fix things, you know? And I, I think he tried his best. I think his problem was he's like surrounded himself with idiots. Um, you know, and and he didn't realize how deep that swamp really is there in DC. So, uh, but yeah, I kind of agree. Same thing, you know, we're a great country, but yeah, we're kind of stuck in this weird limbo of like, oh, we either vote for this person or that person. It's the same shit over. Uh, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Exactly, different color tie. I say that all the time. Yep. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, back to real leadership. <laughs> yeah. Am I right in understanding it was Iraq that you first found yourself deployed to? Yeah. Uh, for combat wise, I only did two tours in Iraq. Uh, never, no, nowhere else uh, with the military, at least. Um, yeah. 2003. Uh, you know, we we had thought we were going to go to Afghanistan, uh, but then they're like, "Hey, we're switching gears." They called us home early for Christmas and. Uh, that was 2002 Christmas and they called us home early or called us back early from home and said, Hey, we're preparing for this, this desert war. We're like, okay, we're going to Afghanistan, you know, like Southern Afghanistan. 
kind of a desert. And they're like, no, 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 we're going somewhere else. Who else attacked us? You know, like, and so like, hey, we're going to Iraq. And I was like, oh shit, okay, we're going to Iraq. All right. Um, so we did our workup for Iraq, and uh, next thing I know, I'm sitting in a bivouac site in northern Kuwait um, for about a month or two, and then uh, just preparing to go into Iraq, and then they gave us, uh, March 17th, 2003, they gave us the green light, and we literally, I'm sitting there with a with an IR buzzsaw, and for your fans that don't know what an IR buzzsaw is, it's uh, basically a piece of 550 cord with a infrared chem light, like a chem stick on it, and you just swing it to show them where the breach point is so they can enter the breach point into, into Iraq. So I'm literally sitting there spinning this thing. I'm in full chemical gear with a mask on and everything. And I'm like, this is a weird world. Charlie Sheen wasn't doing this shit. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, dude, I, you know, it's like in that movie he's in with Navy Seals and they have a quote in that where he's like, oh man, boys were on the dark side of the moon. I was like, no shit. I was on the dark side of the moon. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, we go into Iraq 2003. It's my unit. Um, you know, our first objective, we took down the kind of the Ramallah oil fields area. Um, the Iraqi Republican Guard had set them on fire, just very similar to like they did in um, uh, the early 90s. Uh, man, I can tell you that heat coming off those things, we're a couple miles away, but you could still feel the heat like you were standing right next to the damn thing. It's unreal. Just a surreal feeling of uh, being there. And we didn't really have a whole lot of contact up to that point. Uh, and then it wasn't until about, let's say, two weeks in, um, we moved into this area, and uh, man, we got hit with artillery. We're getting hit with tank fire. Uh, I mean, it was it was like straight combat. It was a real real time where we faced the enemy, and that was the first time I ever got shot at. I heard it whiz right past my head, and I kind of just like anybody, you don't know what you're going to do until it happens, and I froze up. And it felt like an eternity for me. And then my sergeant like kicked me real hard in the legs. And he's like, fucking shoot. And I was like, okay, here, we're getting it on now. So from that point on, it was just kind of back to the training mode of my mind. Um, we did about six months, I'm going to say, in Iraq. Just uh, We moved all the way up north to Tikrit, uh, which is Saddam's birth home. We took out Tikrit. And then we moved back towards the south in Diwaniya. And just ran some operations out of there. Then we deployed back home. Uh, did a workup, another workup, more training, uh, more more schools and courses, and then uh, got ready to deploy again. Um, I want to say it was May 2004 when we got back over there for our second deployment, and we were out in the western area of Iraq, out in the Sunni Triangle, and. Uh, we were actually running, uh, they called it, what we called it at the time, the rat lines. We were keeping insurgents trying to come over from the border in Syria and Jordan in that area. And so we would just go out, pick fights with them and get them to come out, come out of hiding. They would eventually. And then, uh, our unit was like, Hey, you guys are getting spun up to go to, um, Fallujah. Like, okay. What the hell's Fallujah? You know, I was like, whatever. Let's go. Let's go get some more, you know, and so. Um, a year goes to Fallujah. I think we were there, I want to say four months in Fallujah in the area. And then we pushed into Ramadi and a couple other little 
skid holes and then uh, deployed home. And then by that time, I um, left my unit, went out to become a, um, a mountain instructor, like a CQB instructor at the base, and then uh, just did training after that for that time, for the time last six, seven months I was in, I think. And then uh, deployed home, came home, got out. Was going. To, I was actually going to re-enlist, and I wanted out of the infantry. I was going to go like the intel side because I had ran into these intel dudes in Fallujah. I was like, oh shit, they're interrogating people. This is cool. Let's go do that. Didn't get the chance to, so got out. Uh, came home and kind of just went back to working odd jobs, you know, here and there. So, well, when you say Ramadi, it sounds like it was. End of 04 or 05, it immediately mm-hmm. makes me think of Jocko. I've had him, Leif, you know, all the all yeah. the echelon people on the show. Um, and they always give a huge amount of credit to, you know, I think it was the Army and the Marines that, that they worked alongside during that time. But it sounds like that was an extremely high up tempo. So Oh, extremely. So so were you around, were you interacting with with possibly his groups when you were out there? I think we ran into a few of them. Uh, I know we did some operations. I know we had a ranger element that was near us and they were doing some operations. We were doing a lot of stuff with um, uh, force recon guys. They were coming out with us. We would infiltrate with them and then uh, we'd set them in place and let them do their thing and then we'd pull out. Uh, but uh, we saw a few of the seals, but we never really had a whole lot of interaction with Jocko's guys. But we were in the same areas at the same time. So I want to put a question. We'll talk about Iraq now because I know we're going to get into Afghanistan a little bit later. But the the way that we, the citizens, are presented war through our media stations is very polarizing. Either kill them all, let God sort them out, stack bodies, or they're all baby killers. And in the middle are the men and women that we send over, I mean, arguably almost children that we send over to fight for our country. So firstly, regardless of the politics, and as you just made a little comment on, we're attacked by someone who's hiding in Afghanistan and you're sent to Iraq, a completely different country. Um, regardless of the politics, was there a moment where you got to Iraq and you witnessed some of the atrocities and you realized there were some some bad people that need to be taken care of in that country? Oh, a thousand percent. Uh, I mean, that's all I looked at it as. I, I didn't really, I didn't give two shits about the political side of it at the time. Um, I was there to do a job. I was there to rid bad people and take them off this world. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that was, there was a lot of things. What really changed my mind was in Fallujah. We had this, uh, guy, this villager brought his little five-year-old girl up to us and basically like dumped her into my hands and she was lifeless, dead from, she picked up, um, she was playing with some toys of dirt on the ground, whatever, and IED went off, uh, prematurely killed her just mangled the girl up and uh that that really to this day i still see that little girl's face in my mind um but it motivates me to like be a better human uh than the people who killed her and so i just had this like change i was like okay we're here for something good we're here to take these people out i don't care what it's gonna take i'm gonna fight until i die essentially to find these people that killed this little girl and uh, we actually eventually ended up finding that bomb maker um, that was in that little region that we were working out of. And so it just, that's, that, I think that's when that gear shift in my head, like, 
oh shit, there's actually bad people over here doing some bad stuff to others, regardless of who attacked us on 9-11. We're doing the right thing, you know, essentially. I think a lot of the truth the wrong ground, they didn't look at it as a political issue or is it about oil? Is it about this? Or is it about, you know, Bush hating on Saddam or anything like that? I don't think any of us saw it that, as that. I think we saw it as this is our duty. We've got to come out here and kill these bad guys and then hopefully go home. So. Yeah. And this is why it's so important because, you know, when, for example, you know, we talk about the withdrawal, there's that feeling of shame. And I'm sure it's the same in, in Iraq. When I say there's that feeling, there's one voice in a veteran's head that was like, what was it all for? But then when you hear the stories that you just told, you know, these men and women have made a huge difference, whether it's, you know, I talk about this, you know, the veterinary surgeons, the military veterinary surgeons that help local animals, or whether it was the physicians or building schools mm-hmm. or wells. So it's important that we hear, you know, the good and the bad, I think. Oh, for sure. And I don't think, I think all we hear about is the bad because that's what the media stands in because they love bad news because it gives them ratings. Um, so all we hear is the political divide. All we hear is that stuff, you know, like, you know, when they say like in 2003, when they're like, oh, there was no weapons of mass destruction. I'm like, that's bullshit. We found rockets with, you know, mustard gas. We found rockets with, you know, nerve gas in on that time. Yeah. It wasn't to the effect of nuclear weapons or, you know, the way the media portrayed it as, but yeah, we found stuff, you know, that was there, but it wasn't maybe in the quantity. Did it, did it warrant invading a country? Maybe not, but, you know, there was other reasons why we went there. Uh, the people don't, people don't understand why we went there. Um, you know, I see it now. I see it on both sides. But I try to look at it as, like, I wasn't there to fulfill some asshole's political agenda. You know, I was there to rid this world of very evil human beings that I don't even consider human beings. I just consider them just evil spirits, evil demons, whatever you want to call them. Uh, you know, that was my job to do. And so I, I proudly did it and I'd do it again. When you're talking about there still being, you know, mustard gas and some of these other weapons, um, it reminds me, I just interviewed a photographer from New York and she has done, I mean, she's, a, she's an artist, but she's done an amazing job of chronicling, chronicling um, the homelessness and addiction in, you know, I think it's, I think it's Philly as well, um, but, but in New York and LA, but one of the things that she's been finding so often is trank. And you've got these poor addicts that are just literally rotting from the outside in. And her point was when she's trying to get some of these pictures out there, the the media, you know, like, well, we can't show this, but they'll show graphic scenes from Gaza. And it's funny because if you think about it, the message is, well, that's happening to other people. We don't want to see what's happening to our own people. And it's the same with the mustard gas. Well, you know, nuclear bombs can't be brought to America. So, you know, all they found was mustard gas. Well, yeah, but they were poisoning, you know, Chemical Ali and all these other shitbags were poisoning thousands of their own people. And I think that disconnect is probably, you know, the same thing. Like, well, just don't don't make it scary to our own people. Don't talk. You can talk about human trafficking in Colombia, but don't talk about human trafficking in in America and, and how it can actually be done through a cell phone to your own child oh yeah oh yeah and i and i work on some of those issues you know and we're the number one we're the number one supplier and buyer of that crap uh, when it comes to the human trafficking side but yeah the people don't want to see that they don't want to under they don't want to oh my gosh it's 
we don't mind if it's happening to other people, but as long as it's not, we don't want to see it here at home. We want to have our little utopian bubble that we live in. And we're all like that, you know, <laughs> much. It can be a very beautiful place, but it's also a very dark, scary place at the same time. So, Well, I think that complacency allows that to fester, to grow. If we're aware of it and it's prominent, we're not doom and glooming, like you said, but we're you know, thinking about the safety of our kids in schools and if someone's preying upon them through social media and you know all these other things. If we're acknowledging that and vigilant about it, I think it would be a lot less likely to happen. But if we shove it under the carpet and ignore it, we're creating a more and more dangerous place for our children. Oh, for sure. And, you know, it goes back to that same mentality of like that it was it's too taboo to talk about, just like with our, you know, grandfathers and grandmothers where they didn't talk about their problems. They just kind of swept it under the rug and moved on. You know, we're still we live in that still that same mentality. Absolutely. Well, on on the positive side, like you said, we don't get a lot of good news stories either. And I've heard so many beautiful stories either from what our own military have done or also all the indigenous people because again we tarred everyone with the same brush we're at war with iraq with afghanistan and we're not there's shitbags in those countries that are terrorizing their own people and we're there trying to help um so through the uh time in iraq what about kindness and compassion moments that you remember oh man i mean we had uh you know, it's crazy. So we were right outside of Fallujah. One of our uh, supply trucks got hit with a mortar one day. Um, I think it was a rocket, actually, that hit it. But it blew up. So we had no food, no ammo for, like, almost a week. I mean, we had enough to survive for the week, but we just didn't have a whole lot. Well, we were posted right next to this, like, cattle farm. And uh, I think that that, that uh, farmer saw what happened to us from his house. He literally brought over sheep to us uh to just give to us and he's like here 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 and he tells our interpreter this is for you guys getting rid of the terrorists in my city and i was just like man these people they're they're so inviting they're loving caring a guy would bring us tea every day um and then eventually we had to get him to stop because he was giving away our positions a whole lot (laughs) (laughs) where where all the sheep are (laughs) yeah yeah basically you know and then we started realizing oh man he keeps they keep hitting that area you know so like maybe we should move but no i just uh saw a lot of kindness a lot of compassion from people in that area you know and um you know one of my docs uh that was served with me i mean people don't realize how kind and compassionate medics are um that dude saved my life multiple times in iraq wouldn't be here today if it weren't for him pushing me down you know into ditches and whatnot when we were getting hit um you know but i i'd see him one one second try to you know defend our position killing someone or trying to shoot somebody and you know and he just wounds the guy but then we get close enough to the guy and he slaps the bandage on that dude um you know, I'm just like, where does that come from? You know, you know, amongst all this chaos, there's still some good, good out there. Absolutely. One of the two Iwo Jima vets was a, was a Navy corpsman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I saw that all over the world. Uh, you know, people think Afghanistan is such a war-torn country. I mean, those are some of the greatest people I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, you know, a lot of them I call friends. Some of them I call family, you know, just they're that close to me. But um yeah, I think we don't we don't see enough of that kindness and compassion in our media, uh, in our world. You know, that's not displayed enough because it doesn't get doesn't get ratings. It doesn't get the 
the wow factor that you know chaos and trauma do. I, I think there's a paradigm shift. I, I really hope so. I'm, I'm a kind of incurable optimist, an angry optimist. Mm-hmm. Like if when people are unkind, I want to choke them to death. But you know, yeah. overall, I'm, I'm a kind good person. But um, yeah. I just shared a beautiful video of a a police officer. I don't know exactly where it was actually from, but there was an army vet, young army vet, and he was mm-hmm. sitting on a bridge. The deputy, you know, pulled oh, him yeah. off. Yeah, I saw that. Uh-huh. Yeah. And and it was, you know, it was humanity. That was it. And and I saw that get shared a lot. So I think there is a yearning to see that, but it's that nastiness, divisive, you know, thing that is the the low-hanging fruit, as they say. But it's comes at a cost. The more you pump out that horrible, you know, just just toxic content that you're literally tearing down the fabric of society, but you could literally post, you know, matter of fact, when things are bad and post that because that's the news, but then post these beautiful stories of humanity that I see everywhere. Cause if you follow them, then that's what your feed starts to become. And I think that these news agencies would probably have a lot of success because I know they got to sell advertising space, but if you're going to do that, draw people in with something positive, not negative. Exactly. And, you know, there's another prime example that I saw the other day on Instagram where a guy, um, cops were in a shootout with uh, a criminal suspect on the highway and one of them got hit and this bystander ran over there, grabbed the police officer and dragged him behind a car. And lo and behold, that guy was uh, a multiple time felon, you know, and, and, and on paper, he's supposed to hate the police. But yeah, he's like, wait a minute, this guy's dying. I got to get him back to cover, you know? And so he had no training, nothing like that. He just knew it was like, okay, I got to get this guy to safety. And he dragged the guy out of his kind of his heart, you know? And I was like, we need to see more of that. Yeah. I know exactly what you're meaning. And it was a, a super um, effective drag too. I mean, he had the mm-hmm. guy by his vest and it's as good a drag that I've seen of any, any evacuation military or first responder. <laughs> yeah. I seriously, I, I was like, okay, this dude's got some sort of training. I'm like, there's no way, but then come to find out he had nothing, you know, he was, he had been a clear criminal for a while. So. Absolutely. But that's the perfect example though. Um, so you talked about transitioning out this first transition that you had when people go into the military, especially, I think, I think it's more powerful if you've had a kind of disruptive early life, and then you go into a place where you're challenged, there's shared suffering, you become part of a tribe, you've got purpose, it's so healing, but then, you know, four, eight years, maybe you know, even longer, you come out the other end and it can be really, really um, jarring for first responder or a military. What was that first time you said you went to a quote unquote normal job? What was your first transition like? Yeah. So when I got out, uh, I didn't really have a plan. You know, I was 26 at the time. Um, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I got out. Uh, I started uh, doing some balancing at some nightclubs on the weekends and nights. And then, uh, and I need more than that. So, uh, I started working at the mall, local mall that we had here. And I was actually a stockroom boy in Abercrombie, uh, clean shaved, you know, <laughs> a lot different than now, but they have to um, stock the shelves with their shirt off. Are they allowed to leave their shirt on back there? That, you know, it's funny because they made the guy, <laughs> the store, the floor associates, if they were guys, if they were fit, they had the, no shirts on sometimes. Um, and I thought, I was like, this is the dumbest thing ever. I was like, just, just put a shirt on. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, no, you worked in the stock room and then, uh, man, maybe I need a real job. And so I applied at uh, a trucking company here, uh, JB Hunt. And, 
you know, they're big, big multinational company, uh, transportation. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, let's see what they have. So I got a corporate security job with them working nights doing theft investigation of like high value trucks. And I was like, man, this is boring as shit. Like, man, you know, I went from running a gun, gun lines, you know, and mortar teams and all this stuff and doing call for fire missions and shooting and whatnot. And I was just like, I'm just typing on the computer. I'm like, this is boring. You know, I'm like, I can't do this. So it's been about 10 months in that. Nine, ten months, and uh, just just set up, and um, uh, essentially got myself fired uh, in a way. Uh, kind of before I was fired, I quit. <laughs> you know that kind of thing. And um, I was like, man, I'm gonna go back in the military. And so at that point, I had wanted to fulfill a dream that wasn't really my dream. It was a dream for my Navy corpsman buddy that passed away in a training exercise. Uh, you know, he was two weeks from going to Bud. Uh, before he got killed in a vehicle accident when they were doing one last training op with our unit in the Marines. And so, man, maybe I'll go, I'll go fulfill this dream that he always had, you know, he'll be a SEAL. And um, literally on my way to the recruiting office that day, and uh, I forgot that I'd put an application in with Blackwater right after I got out, January of 06. And this is roughly like mid late um, 07, 2007. And so she calls me and says, Hey, recruiter called me from Blackwater. Hey, we got a spot open for you. You know, George, if you wanted, you want to come to training? I was like, Yes, let me go take care of some. I got to go finish that, tie, tie up some loose ends. So I went into the recruiter and told them, Hey, not going. Got a chance to go overseas as a contractor. Uh, and they're like, okay, go have fun, you know? And so two weeks later I was out in training and on the East coast, but with that, let me backtrack just slightly. So right after I got out, um, just like all vets, you know, I was struggling to find my tribe, find my sense of purpose. Didn't really have one essentially, uh, kind of lost it getting out. Um, a lot of built up anger, a lot of built up tension, a lot of that from my childhood didn't realize it at the time but uh late march of 2006 i was like you know fuck it man i'm out i'm done with this life you know so all the shitload of pills that i had from va and just kind of laid there in my bathroom waiting on it to take its effect and a good friend of mine that i bounced with um i guess i wasn't answering my phone and he came and busted down my door uh got inside the house and uh shoved his finger down my throat, made me start throwing up, kept flooding me with water and whatnot. Basically got me to throw all this crap up and, you know, kind of saved me from my suicide attempt, you know, and it's, uh, yeah, I'm a little more open about it now than I have been. I uh, really kept that quiet for a long time, but because uh, didn't really want it to come up on psychic culture. <laughs> You know, work and whatnot, but like at this point, I'm like, ah, I don't give a fuck about it anymore. You know, like, I actually I feel like I'm stronger talking about it than I am hiding it. Hundred percent. And so, yeah. So he uh, and he was in the MMA and some uh, no gi jujitsu. And uh, about two months later, I was you know two months sober. He was like, hey man, why don't you come join me at my garage gym that we go to? I was like, okay. So we'll go see what this is about. And that's where I got balled up by that Brazilian dude. Uh, and I was like, oh man, I gotta. 
I got to look into this. Let's, let's do this, you know? And so I basically replaced a bad habit with a very healthy habit. And I found that sort of tribe almost that, that, that drive, like, Oh, I can let this anger out on the mat. So I can let this anger out on this, in this cage when I'm biting somebody. Um, and so it kind of turned my life around. And when, when I tell people jujitsu and like combat sports save my life, I, I literally mean it. It saved my life. Um, and, you know, and my story's not unique. I mean, there's thousands of guys that have done that same thing with combat sports. And so I kind of owe that, that point in my life to what I'm doing now and like how I can survive now. Like I owe it to that moment. When I think back, I'm like, okay, I was, I wasn't very strong during that moment. I was kind of weak, but I had a friend of mine who was strong. Now I need to pay that forward and start helping other people get out of that situation. Themselves. So. Absolutely. Well, I want to jump in for a second. Two things. Firstly, I mean, underlining what you just said there, if you think about the body system, I think the Israeli um, military, the way they operate is they literally partner you up with someone and your mission isn't so much you know to survive or it's just literally to protect your partner and vice versa and i love that philosophy and this is the thing with the mental health conversation you know it's not about having a non-profit or a phone number to me it's ultimately you know having that group that little tribe that you've got with you know two three four five people and making sure that you're just checking on those so the fact that your friend recognized that and acted is is phenomenal the other thing I want to ask you, though, because, again, talking about elements that are not in front and center of this conversation, a lot of the old school discussions on mental health were suicide is cowardly. He's being a pussy. You know, it's selfish. You know, how could you? And then you listen to hundreds of people that were there, you know, yourself included. And ultimately, there's a there's a miswiring of the brain because every one of us, you know, is put on this earth to thrive, to reproduce and, and stay alive and protect our kids and, you know, pass on our lineage. Um, and so through the compounding elements of childhood trauma, organizational stress, you know, sleep deprivation, com uh, combat trauma, all these things, TBIs, some people get to the point where the brain is miswired, no different than, you know, a femur being broken. Um, and so the one thing that I've heard people say over and over and over again, of course, is like, I want the suffering to end. But there's another thing, and it'd be interesting to get your take. Almost all of them said, I felt like a burden. So there was guilt and shame, oh, which yeah? is behind, you know, why some of these parents, for example, leave very young kids behind because it doesn't make any sense to a healthy brain. But to them, their entire reality was, I'm a burden to family X or friend group Y. So with that being said, was there any element of that when you were prior to taking the pills? Oh, oh yeah, hundred percent. You know, and I, I've been addicted to those pills since like late Oh three, you know, the, the naval hospital stuff would give them to us to sleep, you know, whether it's ambient or whatever it may be, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I, I definitely felt like I wasn't an asset, you know, I wasn't, bringing something to the table like I was when I was in uh you know like I knew the guy above me's job uh, the guy above me I knew his job and I knew the person below me I knew their job and vice versa you know and so I didn't feel that when I got out uh you know I felt like the typical oh everybody owes me something because of my service you know, they owe me thank yous 
you know, and I'm just like, nobody owes me shit. Uh, you know, this is vol- I volunteered to go. I wasn't pushed to go, you know, and so, but uh, yeah, I didn't feel like I was, co- you know, contributing uh, to my community and my society. Uh, it's okay, I'm out, you know. You know, why, why am I going to be a burden? Why am I going to be a sad, mopey, dopey dipshit, you know, to my family? And, you know, and, and all they wanted to do was help, but I didn't want their help, you know, because it was, it was help that I needed a long time ago, but I never had it prior to that, you know? And so now that I thankful, you know, I'm very thankful I had that friend of mine that did step in. He recognized that he had no military background, nothing of that nature but he had the combat sports background and he realized like, okay, this is different. This is a tribe, you know, this guy, I need to bring him in, you know, like make him feel a part of it. So That's amazing. Even when you think about the context of when that was to have that kind of insight when we really weren't talking about it yet is phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and I, I asked him one time, you know, years later, I said, man, what were you thinking when you busted in my door to come get, come find me? And he's like, dude, I knew you were messed up. Uh, he goes, I just didn't know the level. And he goes, man, someone helped me a long time ago with some stuff that I struggled with when I was a kid. He goes, I, I wanted to help you. He's like, I see it in your eyes. Uh, he goes, I saw it every time you got in a fight at the bar at night, you know, trying to throw somebody out of the club. Um, you know, he, he always says you had this like glaze over your face most of the time where you just didn't you didn't feel like you fit in i was like dude you're damn right i didn't fit in you know i didn't i didn't feel it you know and and you know i love it because he's out doing great things to himself now he's a police officer he's been a police officer for a long time now after college and you know and so he's he's serving back in his community and so yeah it was uh i just didn't feel like an asset you know i didn't feel like uh i did feel like the burden you know just like a lot of you know, a lot of my friends have taken their lives, you know, they all felt like they were burdens upon their children or whatever. And so they just decided to, their, their family would be better off without them when in all reality, we're actually, they're better with us being here. So, yeah, I think that needs to be on the posters. It needs to be in the discussion. You know, the red flag to me is if you start believing that you're a burden to your family, that's when, you know, you need to pick up. And we, if we say, Think about your kids, think about your wife to someone who's in crisis. We're doing it, you know, thinking it's the right reason, but actually we're inadvertently pushing them towards it because they are. I'm a burden. Okay. I love my wife. I love my kids. All right. Well, let me remove myself so they can live happily ever after because that's a distorted reality again. So I think by trying to get that out there, any anyone who's listening, you know, if you start believing that, understand that there's some miswiring going on. And that is, if you haven't already, that is a time to really pick up the phone. Whoever's whoever's closest to you that will will be that shoulder to start, you know, moving towards getting some help. Yeah. And 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 you know, I, I don't I don't I tell people all the time I don't care where you get help from. Like I'll even put posts out of every now and then on my social media, like on Instagram or whatever. I'm like, hey, I don't care who you are. I may not know you, but if you're, if you're struggling with something, hit me up. You know, I don't care if you're a stranger. Um, I don't care if you weren't military, if you're just a police officer, if you're just a regular everyday person who had some trauma in their life, like, dude, come talk to me, you know, maybe, maybe we can just sit there and listen and talk to each other and see what, see what we can do. Uh, there's not enough of that. Um, you know, I, I think we're starting to see a little shift with a lot of veterans are changing a lot of the GWAT veterans are starting to change that mentality. Uh, but we still got a long ways to go. 
um, you know, and, and I just, uh, yeah, I, t- I took it all with a grain of salt and then like, okay, let's, let's just keep pushing, you know, like that, that was just a chapter of my life. We need to keep pushing. Let's go. Absolutely. Well, you talked about transitioning into contracting then when you look back now, what are the, the commonalities and the differences between, you know, regular Marines and now working in Blackwater as a contractor? I would say the the camaraderie is the same. The the working in a small unit was similar. It it wasn't direct line combat, it was more protection, the defensive positions versus offensive positions, but that camaraderie was there, that tribe was there, that sense of, oh, I'm bringing something to the table there. Like I brought all that military experience being able to, you know, speak on radios properly, being able to have proper discipline and etiquette around, you know, high profile people. You know, they, that uh, I didn't realize the discipline I had learned from boot camp actually was helping me out how to deal with politicians and diplomats, uh, you know, when I just had to bite my tongue, you know, and just stay disciplined, you know, and so uh much different world uh they're definitely two different worlds but at the same time they're the same same concept you know we it gave the i'm thankful as bad as 9-11 was i'm thankful for that because it's hard a or spurred a a whole different job section for veterans even veterans previous to 9-11 that were already in um that had gotten out or whatever they got out and they were able to come back and still do find a sense of purpose guys from other wars from gulf war even they even worked with guys from vietnam veterans they came back as contractors because now they found that sense of purpose and so i think it helped a lot of guys get over a lot of war stress and i know it helped me get over a lot of war stress because it kind of subsided eventually to the fact of it didn't affect me in a negative manner because I'm like, oh, dude, I'm learning a skill, but I'm also contributing to my tribe. This is this is my group. This is the people I want to be around the rest of my life. You know, um, you know, I, I found similarities with them, um, good and bad, and then I found major differences. Like I'm no longer having to sleep in a, like a dirt hole. You know, I got a nice cushy room that I'm sleeping in. You know, I can. I don't have to sit there and freeze outside and I put gloves on. <laughs> you know, I have the money to do it, you know, instead of uh, just kind of wasting, not, not wasting away, but like, uh, you know, living paycheck to paycheck, essentially when you're in the military, you know, I mean, because you don't get paid very much. You know, it was a huge, huge bump for me because I get out, get out barely making $19,000 a year, if that, uh, going to making fourteen dollars an hour as a security guy and I'm like, oh okay, this isn't bad. And then leaving that and now I'm making six figures in less than six months. I'm like, dude, I'm doing something good. You know, so like here we go. But now I love the uh it had the same camaraderie like I was talking about, same similarities, but uh definitely drastically different. Uh no more frontline fighting. You know, that's that's the big difference a lot of people don't realize about contractors. We're not out there on the front line like the infantry guys are and stuff like the military 
uh, we're more in defensive positions than anything. So, and we have a lot, I think we have a lot more strict, uh, SOPs and rules that we have to go abide by versus, uh, you know, the military does. I just had two guys on the show that, um, protected kind of logistical truck deliveries. And then they ended up being even the, the mail that was delivered to our, of our, uh, military, and they were absolutely in the thick of it. They were con- so they, they were initially in, and they ended up coming out and going in in this role as contractors. But I mean, they they lost so many people. And what they were talking about was, you know, the um, uh, quick reaction forces. You know, their their priority is still the military groups. So they would get hit by IEDs and then just be kind of out on their own. So it was kind of interesting hearing some of these contracting stories. You know, on one side, like you hear, there's there's, there's a money to be made and and someone who's transitioned out can now do pretty much the same role, but actually under better conditions with good pay. But then you hear other elements of contracting where, you know, some of these men and women are kind of left to their own devices in a very hostile environment. Oh, for sure. And that and that happened a lot. We saw that a lot in and you know, in my what, close to fifteen years of contracting, you know, I I could see all that. Um there were out, there was other companies out there that did just kind of leave their people hanging, you know, didn't really care about them, you know, and we, we didn't notice it until I think back and I noticed it in 2004 in Iraq, but I didn't really give much attention to it because that wasn't my focus. But there was a few companies that were just kind of like cowboy companies, like here today, gone tomorrow, guys, you know, they just jumped on some sort of like logistics contract or whatever. And then their dudes got, right in the thick of, you know, the Sunni Triangle or whatever they read or Southern Afghanistan and they got hit and they, they had no help. They had to get out of there themselves, you know, so there, there was that element. And I think the media took a lot of that element and like highlighted it even more and made us all out to be like, Oh, we're bad people. We're just over here killing innocent people for money. And it's, it's the total opposite. We ain't mercenaries, you know, like people think we are. Absolutely. Well, so you had that contracting side. You mentioned about thinking that the um, the intelligence side was cool earlier in your career. How did you find yourself transitioning into the CIA? Yeah, so um, we'd taken the ambassador over to one of their facilities uh, in Afghanistan. And I ended up seeing a, a guy that I knew uh from from my hometown here um and i was like man this guy looks familiar like who i know i know this guy from somewhere and i went up so i was like hey man are you from you know arkansas and he's like yeah i, I go where did you go to high school and he told me and i was like oh dude i think we went to high school together briefly and he was like a year or two older than me uh but i remember this dude and uh so we started chatting and we ended up knowing a lot of the same people and i was like holy shit i know this guy this is awesome you know it's kind of weird seeing someone from your same town you're from, you know, in this, the middle of, uh, nowheresville, Afghanistan. And so, uh, like, well, what do you do here? And then he explained kind of briefly what he did, you know, uh, what's funny is he actually gave me his whole backstory, his cover story versus, you know, what he was really doing, but I could kind of figure out what he was doing. Uh, I'd been, <laughs> been around that field long enough to realize, you know, okay, he's bullshitting me for a good reason. Um, and I was like, oh, man, you know, I, you know, years ago, I tried to get into the intel field. I uh, never could. Uh, uh, he goes, hey, man, I know all the guys on this uh, 
the security programs over here. Um, he goes, shoot me a resume, you know? He's like, so I shot my resume to him. And um, this kind of later, 2009-ish, like the fall of 2009. And uh, I came home on emergency leave to go to a family funeral. And then uh, when I tried to get back overseas on my same ambassador's detail, um, I got a random number call and I was like, okay, said unknown. I was like, okay, I'll just answer it, see who it is. So I answer it and they tell me who they are. And they were part of the same company I was in at the time, but it was a different different side of the house. Um, and so they said, hey, your, your interim clearance came through. You know, we got a slot for you to come train. Let's the vetting process can you want to come and i was like yeah sure so called my detail leaders overseas and i said hey guys i'm resigning from this position i'm going on the other side of the house um and so get through my training and then uh next thing i know i think i'm going to be posted in iraq or wherever and they send me right back to afghanistan and i ended up seeing that buddy of mine and uh I was like, dude, uh, man, I want to thank you, you know, for getting me over here. I appreciate it. You know, you kind of put in a good word. And uh, he's like, yeah, man, no worries. You know, it was awesome. And so, yeah, I kind of just, uh, that's how I kind of fell into it. Kind of knew somebody that was right place, right time, essentially. So Now, obviously, you can't divulge much. But in general, what did your role shift to under that umbrella? Uh, kind of same thing, protective role uh protective security um and within those roles you have different various things that we do or tasked out to do but uh, uh overall protective security so. so you've spent as you said you've gone from combat to starting to push more and more towards close protection um what made you decide to transition out and then ultimately get into that under your own um, banner yeah so i had briefly done a little bit of that uh, right after I got out, uh, I had gotten in with a little private family um, here locally that I had. Uh, they asked me to come be essentially like a like a house sitter nanny during the day uh, for one of their children that had some threats against them. And so I was essentially doing unarmed security for these people, but I didn't realize it at the time. Um, and then got into the protective security and the agency and then. November 2019, I, I counted up every single deployment that I had done in that 21 years plus, and that's plus with my military career. And it was 43 overseas deployments in war zones. And granted, our deployments were 60, 70 days at a time, but I was just like, that's still a deployment. I was like, dude, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. You know, I'm pushing into my 40s, like getting close to it. I'm like, dude, I, I can't do this. I want a family, you know. I, I want to settle down someday. Uh, it's not conducive to, you know, home life, a good home life at least. Some guys can pull it off. I think the majority can't, you know. And so uh, I got out and then uh, COVID hit and everything shut down. No more guys going overseas, nothing. I was like, okay, maybe I made the right decision. Uh, so I needed a job, so I started working for Walmart Corporate, uh, and I knew they had uh, a close protection team for their VIPs and their their CEO and stuff. And I was like, okay, that's the, I'm going to push into that because that's my background. I know that. Uh, but at the time, they didn't have anything really open, so I was doing uh, I was patrolling empty parking lots wearing a mall cop uniform uh, in a car that said 
Walmart security draped all across it, you know, and it's like, oh, this sucks. You know, this is horrible. I was going to say, because I heard you talking about that on the uh, GSPG podcast, and I wanted to ask you when we sat down, we talked about jarring, loss of purpose, sense of tribe. Now you're patrolling an empty car park in a Walmart car. Did you have another jarring moment having just left oh, the high-op tempo that you were working in yeah, before? Yeah, 100%. You know, and it, it was, I was around guys that some of them had military backgrounds, some of them had law enforcement, but they'd been out. They had been conditioned to a different style of work at that point, more so than I had. Uh, and so, yeah, super jarring. I was like, man, what am I doing with my life? This sucks. <laughs> I know it's a job. I got to do it, you know? So I sucked it up and did it, you know, paid the bills. Well, I was like, man, this is horrible. Uh, what am I going to do? You know, like, I uh, kept trying to get over to their executive protection team because I knew they had an open slot. But unfortunately, they weren't hiring anybody for that slot because of COVID. And I was like, okay, man. So about five months in, like, what am I going to do? So a friend reached out to me and he's like, hey, I have a client or a possible client that needs protection work. Um, I don't know how to do the executive side of it. Uh, You know, what what kind of questions could I ask? So I kind of briefed this friend of mine through it um what to do how to how to build the program and about a week or so into it he calls me he's like hey dude can you just come run it and i was like okay yeah sure but this is the pay that i want and so client was like yeah let's let's bring him on he liked the background so met with the client uh kind of just started doing this protection work for a very ultra high net worth family and then uh as a solo protector literally by myself and so Started that, and then the client wanted me to come on directly as an embedded employee for him, and so uh, we worked out some legal issues, and so I just went to work directly for them instead of being third-party contracted out. Um, kind of, but through that, I kind of developed my own company, Eating Global Risks, and doing some consulting work on the side for other clients outside of the protection side of things, and just kind of built this trying to build a legacy through that you know and so i found my purpose again you know and i found like okay this is what i'm great at i'm great at the low profile protection i can provide this for the family uh, i can give them a sense of the normalcy again so they can go back to living a normal life and that's essentially what i've, I've done for them so well a couple of things jump out firstly you talked about um being assigned to someone because their kid was getting threats. And immediately I thought if you'd had a close protection guard when you were in seventh grade, you would have kicked the shit out of that older kid and that young you would never have entered the military. So probably so. Yeah, probably <laughs> so. Yeah, probably not. So I mean, I don't know. I may have because I, you know, growing up I'd always wanted military. I was always out digging foxholes, building forts, doing all kinds of playing war, having BB gun wars with my friends in the neighborhood. So yeah, I probably would have eventually gone there, but uh, you never know. <laughs> so. Well, another thing I heard in the other podcast that they were talking about was there was an organization where they were teaching nannies close protection skills. And I was like, that is that is phenomenal because, I mean, ultimately, all of us, you know, be your own be your own bodyguard kind of philosophy. But, you know, when when I get you to kind of 
unpack what that actually looks like as far as you know the role of someone in close protection but yeah when there are teachers nannies you know all these kind of groups i'm looking at it from a medical point of view they should know cpr they should know actions for choking they should know all that but then also you know that that kind of threat recognition you know some of the the de-escalation techniques you know making sure that they're not introducing children into a higher risk environment in the first place. So talk to me about that. Cause I thought that was a fascinating concept. Oh yeah. So those are the, uh, friend, I call them friends. I don't really know them partially, but I know them through LinkedIn and other, you know, in our community, the protection industry for as big as it is, it's super small. Um, but, um, yeah, so they, so a friend of mine, the growth grows family, Chris and Danita Grove. Uh, they run this company called Nanny Guards, and they literally train everyday nannies how to be bodyguards, essentially, on top of the regular nanny duties. I think it's an amazing concept, especially for ultra-high net worth people that they, they serve. And, uh, you know, I never went through any of their courses, but thinking back, I'm like, wow, I was doing that essentially for that small, for that small private family initially. And now I do it every day for the family that I work for currently. And so they have, you know, young children. And so you have this, it's, it's a very hard job as a solo protector, especially if you're just a nanny or even if you got a, like a one or two man team, um, it's a tough job to deal with that because kids have different threats than the parents do. Parents have different threats than say the house has threats or whatever it may be. So you got to kind of, it takes someone very mature, I think. And someone that's, I don't think you could take like, there's guys that are great at being a machine gunner, but there's not very guy. There's not guys that are great at that person may not be great at leading or doing a soft, a soft skills job, essentially. Um, you know, they have their specialty. I think in the protection world, you have guys that, literally can just stand holes and walls and do what they're told to do. And then there's guys that can jump between both worlds. They can be, can melt into a group and be one of their assistants or a friend, essentially look like a friend, but yet you're there to serve a security role. And so I learned through doing close protection overseas. I kind of took that mentality. Yes. It's a different threat but I took that same mentality of customer service. Like I'm here to do a job for these people. I'm here to make them feel safe so they can do their job and be, feel like a normal productive member of society instead of living in fear and threat. But I also looked back and like, maybe I, sh I didn't have that when I was in seventh grade, you know, or junior high. Like I didn't have that someone there by my side protecting me and telling me everything's going to be okay. We'll take care of the threat. You go live your life. Uh, you know, I look back and I'm like, okay, maybe I can do that for other people now. And, and I truly enjoy it. I love it. So. Well, I want to pose a question to you. I'm sure you've probably been asked, you know, talk to you know the, the, the parents out there and how we can be, you know, take some of your principles and apply it. But the first responder professions, a lot of them that listen, you've obviously got law enforcement, you know, they are trained for in, in a good department for de-escalation for, you know, um, dealing with a threat if need be. But you've got firefighters and paramedics and EMTs where we respond to the exact same place as law enforcement with no body armor, with no sidearm. 
And so our words, and then sometimes our narcotics, are our only uh, our only weapons, really. So, speaking to that subset of the first responders, what would be some of the principles that you would take from all your years' experience when it comes to identifying threat, de-escalation, etc., that you could apply as a firefighter or a paramedic to the men and women that we interact with? Uh, I would say. Look at that, not, maybe not necessarily look at that person as a threat, uh, especially for uh, first responders side of it, more so, not so much the security guys. Uh, you guys are trained to look at people with medical threats. Um, if someone's agitated, maybe they were, honestly, they don't have a medical problem. Maybe they're just having a bad day. Um, you know, I've had threats like that, you know, working close protection where, I just know this person is having a bad day and they just happen to run into my, the people run into me or the people that I'm with, you know, I'm kind of take their aggression out on them. Uh, so I think about, I think that comes with time of learning people's behavior patterns, uh, learning how not everything is a dire situation. Um, sometimes you can just deescalate things with a simple, uh, a simple handshake, simple like uh, misdirection. Um, you know, we do it with kids. We do it with children all the time when they're upset. We misdirect them so they they don't feel their pain anymore. I do it in jujitsu all the time. Every time my kids get hurt or they feel like they got hurt, you know, I do this little thing where I'm like, "You're running through the forest. Watch out for the tree," and they they're back to normal, you know. And so, I think misdirection is a big big tool to use. Uh, kind of spear in this, bringing them this way, letting the people go away and let them live their life um continue on with their business instead of uh allowing them to get into that bubble and become an actual real threat um i think misdirection is the biggest caveat or the biggest uh not caveat but the biggest um uh, biggest tool you could use to uh, de-escalate a situation it's funny when you talk about someone having a bad day. I literally took my dog to the beach, it's my favorite beach up on the east coast here. And uh, I go, you know, usually off off season early, like today was Sunday, so early Sunday morning, early ish Sunday morning. And the beach is all but deserted. When I'm when we're around other people, or if someone's got a dog on the beach as well, I'll keep her on the leash. And as soon as we're clear, meaning literally like quarter of a mile either way. I'll take her off leash and throw the ball. And she's phenomenal. She's not going to hurt anyone, but she's a German shepherd. And I know that scares some people, but I'm no one's anywhere near me. And all of a sudden from the dunes where all the houses are, I see this woman like full Karen mode, just fucking speed striding towards me. And I'm like, Oh, this is kind of weird anyway. So, um, you know, I just carry on and I look over my shoulder after and she's got her cell phone and she's recording me. And then, and again, it's like, that was, you know, we say you woke up and chose violence where you woke up and chose misery, basically, like this an empty beach, one dude running his dog and you felt compelled to speed towards them yeah. to get it on your camera. Um, and, uh, you know, that we end up going to the end. And then it's funny when I came back, I was passing her again. I put her on the leash because I'm like, obviously this woman doesn't like the dog being off the leash. So I put her on the leash and then smiled and said, how are you doing today? And she just glared at me and I was like, oh, good. Have a good day. <laughs> yeah. And then walks yeah. off killed her with kindness. Yeah. But again, yeah. secluded beach, someone interjected them into my life. Now that was a 60-year-old pissed off, you know, white woman. But that could have been someone with a completely different background that could have been a threat. So just to like you said, whether it's the New York paramedic that got stabbed a few months ago, I just saw a London 
or a British paramedic get pushed out of an uh, a uh, ambulance and really mess up her arm. So you know we we do have to be aware of that. And you know the if it's an eight year old kid that's having a bad day, it's not probably going to be a huge threat. But if it's you know someone who's messed out and they're two hundred pounds, that could oh, yeah. be a, a, a very credible threat for us. Yeah, and the, and the area I work in, or you know, for a good while, was had a big homeless population right around our corporate office, and so I was constantly out there dealing with homeless people trying to get into the building or just trying to find some shade, you know, during the summer or whatever. And I honestly had to be the one to go down and tell them, "Hey, I'm sorry, you can't be here. We're running out of business." But I learned a lot about humans, about how they how to interact with people. Uh, not everybody's a threat. Um, but you do have to look at them sort of, if you're in a security role, you've got to do look them, look at them as a threat to a certain extent. And you got to be prepared for that. If they do decide, oh, I'm going to fight this person or I'm going to escalate this even higher. Uh, but I try to deescalate that prior. And a lot of times I give people options. Um, for example, I had a guy come up. He's trying to get near the client I was with, and this is not the current client I work for, but this is a different different time. Uh, came up to the guy or came up to us and was trying to say, "Oh, hey, I know that guy. I know that guy." And I was like, "Okay, we don't. Sorry, um, we don't know you." Uh, I was like, "How about you come talk to me over here?" You know, and so he's like, "Well, I want to. I want to. How do I? How do I talk to him?" You know, like I know him from high school or whatever, and. I, they were around the same age, so I mean, it's possible. Maybe they did know each other, and you know, my client just didn't remember the, who the guy was. And I was like, "Well, here's my business card, man. You can call me, talk to me, you know, and maybe maybe we can set something up, you know, we go from there." Now, obviously, the guy never reached out or anything, and uh, but uh, you know, I you could de-escalate by misdirection again, um, you know, and so thankfully the guy did it, but come to find out that guy was a, a known felon, a known fugitive, you know, didn't know it. He was a crazy person, you know, drug abuse and whatnot. Didn't even know my client. I had no idea who he was. But I looked at him like he was a fierce threat, but I also kind of like, okay, this guy's obviously got some mental screws loose. Let's let's kind of take it a different direction. And I've always felt like misdirection is the best best thing you know or kill them with kindness you know just smile oh yeah man you know and so a lot of times it brings people out of their their rage for a second because they think that you're going to react to them the same way that they're reacting to you but then when you don't react to them it's either one going to piss them off and make them more reactive or two it's they're going to just let it go like that lady did she kind of looked at you like all weird and then walked away so yeah i think just just Going into a situation with a, what's it, uh, General Mattis says, uh, you know, they kill people with kindness, but have a plan to actually kill them if you need to. <laughs> <laughs> well, that being said, we talked about that, well, you know, the couple of videos of kindness, one from, from a civilian, but the other one from this, you know, law enforcement officer that was phenomenal and was everything everything that i think the uniform is about you know aside from obviously god forbid we have to go hands-on or they have to go hands-on yeah i know i've heard you talking about interacting with you know doing some training with law enforcement with this perspective not only of combat overseas but also the protection side um are there any kind of common errors that you see on some and i'm saying some because we have 
so many great police officers out there, but some of these these videos that sadly make the news go viral, um, that maybe we should be doing a better uh, job of teaching in law enforcement academies when it comes to the lessons you've learned over the last 20 years? Yeah, I think it's a, a lack of training. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing. They they do their baseline, get them passed, shove them out the door. They leave while they're on their respective departments to train them up to advanced levels. I think if we started from the baseline, like teaching de-escalation big time, more so in the academies versus having to teach it on the street, um, I think it'd be a, a better off. Um, I also believe if they had, if all these academies had like a longer session of uh, non, like combatants training, so like jujitsu specifically, uh, learning how to deal with people in a safe manner. Yeah, it looks violent, but it's a lot safer than maybe tasing somebody or having to pull a gun and shoot someone. Uh, and granted, those guys, man, they got a tough job. You know, my hat's off to those dudes that work those streets every day, especially in the very violent violent neighborhoods that we have in this country. But uh, I think teaching that stuff from a base baseline perspective in the academies, uh, I think they need to change their whole mentality on it. They focus so much on the principles, the hard skills of being a police officer and don't teach the soft skills of, you know, interaction with human beings, interaction within the societies. And, you know, and sadly, a lot of these cities have gotten rid of their crime suppression units and they say crime suppression units aren't exactly guys going, cops going out and knocking down doors and arresting bad guys, but they're out there in the community talking to locals and talking and, you know, making friends with them and, you know, helping them to learn how to police their own people within their neighborhoods. Um, you know, we have a city here locally that they got rid of their crime suppression unit because they felt it wasn't, didn't fit their liberal ide- ideological take that they were taking or the political stance that they were taking at the time. Um, you know, and then what they see crime went straight up in those neighborhoods. And so there's a give and take with that. I think they learned that kind of stuff from the basics. They hammer it in them, and then they hammer a very good non non lethal combatant training program like jujitsu. Like uh, even Krav Maga has a lot of training, you know, that non lethal stuff in it. Uh, I think they if they did a good mix of that within the academies, that you know, guys would be a lot better prepared. Because we see a lot of that, we see guys all the time. Uh, if you follow that BJJ cops on Instagram, there's tons, thousands of videos of those guys you know, get manhandled by the, the foot, you know, the criminal, uh, when they, all they could have done is a simple judo toss and brought the guy down safely and, and then being able to restrain that person properly. Yeah. No, I mean, that's the problem is there's so many and, you know, it's sad because you, we're not, our community is not laughing at them. They're just like, look, this is like fat firefighters. You know, this is an issue. They are not going to survive their entire career their family are going to be widowed or widower, you know, widow or widower. And then the people that they're supposed to protect, they might die. That might be the Ovaldi, you know, or the the Parkland or some of these things where there has been an epic failure and children fucking died because of it. So, uh, you know, it's an important conversation. And I think a lot of it goes into the physical health of officers as well. And uh, you see, unfortunately, you see a lot of officers that are very, uh, I'll just bluntly say it, overweight. 
they don't fit the uniform properly. You know, it's like it's like having a doctor who is 400 pounds obese and trying to tell you about how to live a healthy lifestyle. It just doesn't work like that. I think that I think that most departments could demand more of a physical training fitness or fitness program out of their officers. Um, and I think they should start instilling that early on in the academy. And states need to start changing the way they look at stuff. Cities need to start changing the way they look at things. Treating their officers with more like a, like a well-oiled machine versus just, oh, they're just serving a role. You know, they're a number. Absolutely. Well, the other thing that I've noticed, and I've, I've lived it, I, I worked for Anaheim in California for a few years, and there bar was set so high they would lose 25 percent of every new hire class but by the end of the probationary year and it was just like look you know i'm sure you'll be successful in another department you're just not right for us and i fucking love that and it was a line oh, yeah, of a thousand people but what's happened yeah. is the opposite a lot of these cities i think are deluded into the fact that if you lower standards then you're going to fill seats and that's it's completely converse you will fill seats with very large asses but if you really want good first responders, you put the fucking bar back where it's supposed to be. You also, though, include high levels of training and a work week that fosters recovery so that these men and women don't get murdered by their job, which is what happens in the fire service. They work so much that they get fat, you know, and, and get sick because they don't sleep. They never fucking sleep, you know. So yeah. there's some of us that stay in shape, but that's despite the work week, not because of it. So you put those back and you actually fund, not defund. You'll have phenomenal police officers, phenomenal firefighters, oh, sure. but you can't lower the standard and expect things to get better. It's completely, you know, backward thinking. Oh, got it. Yeah. I mean, it's complacency kills. It goes back to that. Uh, and that's all it is. It's complacency. It's one person that gets into an admin position and then they get lazy and then that cycles down the train and just keeps going and going and going and going and going. Um, you know, thankfully, there are departments out there, like you were saying about Anaheim and some of these other areas, that they do hold their people to a higher standard. That's great. They need to. Um, you know, when you got a behemoth of a city like L.A. area and all the little subset lying out, out outer communities, God, you better have the best of the best. We, we demand it by our military. Why don't, why don't we demand it by our local police? our national police or federal police or whoever, you know? So, I mean, look at the guys that go the FBI. I mean, yeah, they're, the FBI is hard to get into. It's hard to get in there. You got to be that poster child, you know, on paper, but then look how much harder it is to get on their HRT team. You know, those guys have to be cream of the freaking crop. Uh, and we should demand that kind of, of all of our officers, of all of our firefighters, of all of our paramedics, everybody. You should have this program in there instilled. And, and people that go, oh, well, we don't have time. We don't have time to do this bullshit. There's time in the day. You know, I'm raising two kids and I and a full-time job, and I still manage to teach and work out and go to jiu-jitsu five days a week. So don't tell me there's no time. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, speaking of which, we, yeah. you know, our paths crossed because I think you did a, a seminar here in our gym. Is that right? Yeah, we were down there traveling. Uh, my my fiance's from uh, Ocala area, and so um, shout out to Iron Legion. They uh, asked me to come in and help teach, uh, do a guest coach for the kids, and then kind of teach a little similar to the adult class. And so, yeah, I was down there. Now they 
want me to come down ever so often, you know, when we're ever in town and help teach. So brilliant. Well, next time, let me know. I'm uh, I'm a, a blue belt finally. I've had a blue belt around my waist for a while, but I walked into a new school I go to, which is not Iron Legion, just because of the the hours. But uh, now I feel like I'm a blue belt. So I'm, you know, I've, I've been doing it for a while. Absolutely love it. But yeah, I'd love to to come and take one of your classes when you're in town. Yeah, for sure, man. I, I love I love spreading jujitsu because I, I know how much it's helped me in life. And, uh, uh, you know, going back to finding your tribe, like outside the military, this is the most tribe-like place I've found that where I fit in the most. I've done all the other sports, but Nothing against CrossFit or anything, but I just never fit into those kind of gyms and those kind of lifestyles. Uh, Jiu-Jitsu is more was more my world because it's that controlled violence that I, that I trained in for so long, you know, in a different capacity. Uh, but now it's I'm in this beautiful thing, you know. And I tell people all the time, like Jiu-Jitsu is like the weirdest place, but also like the greatest place you could ever be in. Uh, one moment there could be like a, a, a billionaire rolling on the map with a dude that's damn near homeless, you know, and they have polar opposite political beliefs, but yet they're the best of friends when they're on those maps rolling and, and all the stress you have from outside the world in the world doesn't matter when you're there and some dude's trying to choke you or break your arm, you know, it, it's like it's the biggest stress release also on top of all that. Uh, but, uh, great workout. I love, I love spreading spreading that knowledge as much as i can so absolutely i've even had i've had days where i've seen and don't get me wrong i've had days where i've I've been you know low but i've had days where i've just seen one of my friends and because we see them you know two three times a week in my case you know you know what they normally look like so you go in one day and they're just they're not themselves and so i'm like you know what i'm not even going to roll today you want to just go outside and talk and that's what we do for like the whole hour and it turns out they've got some pretty significant shit going on in their life, you know? So again, with that tribe, back to your bouncer friend, you know, you also get to to see if we're all fucking hiding in our house because there's a, a pandemic and the government decides the best thing is to do everything that fucks you up mentally and physically, um, you know, how the hell are we supposed to check on each other, you know? So refinding that tribe, whether it's a chess club or a knitting club or jujitsu or spartan races whatever it is the the more you're involved with other human beings the more they might see when you're struggling and then vice versa mm-hmm. yeah we're not meant to be isolated people we it's just not how our genetics works we're made to be in our little tribes in our little communities we're made to be you know amongst people yeah and then we have individuals that are kind of better at being alone uh but in all, they in reality, they still need people. You know, even those people that are sh- extremely introverted. Uh, one of my good friends, um, uh, fellow brown belt that I do jujitsu with, very introverted. But on the mat, super extrovert. I mean, just outgoing, crazy. And we're, I was just talking about that with him today. I was like, dude, you ain't no introvert. I'm like, you're an extrovert when you're on the mat. He goes, oh, yeah, but when I go home, I just I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't, I don't have social groups or anything I'm part of. You know, he's like, I have this tribe and that tribe and that's it, you know. <laughs> I had uh, a guy on the show a while ago who wrote a book called The Introvert's Edge, and he defined what it is to be an introvert or an extrovert. And what he said is, it's where you get your energy. 
And so you, and I, I guess I'm an introvert, so I can go, you know, I just interviewed those, those veterans on there, you know, not with thousands of people, but with an audience sitting on stage with these two very, very important men. And it was brilliant, you know, but where I then recharged is when I went back and in the hotel room and, you know, spent some time on my own, talked to my family, that's my recharge. So yeah. if you get your energy from these large groups, if you, if you kind of feel the need to be in a social setting all the time, then you're probably truly an extrovert. But if you either a shy away or are okay with social gatherings, and I'm the guy that you just turn around one day and you know, one moment and I'm gone, like I'll hit that limit and I'm like, all right, this was awesome. By that's also being an introvert, which I didn't realize. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh, I'm the same way too. Like uh, I can go out in like a social setting, you know, bars and whatever, but I get to a point where I'm just like, yep, I'm gone. Let's go. Time to leave. I, I can't do this. It's overstimulation. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Especially fucking hell, like bars and restaurants these days with televisions everywhere, and then the live band comes and they turn their speakers up to eleven, like Back to the Future, and I'm just like, all right, I gotta, I gotta get the fuck out. <laughs> and it's not even hyper vigilance. Yeah, my hyper vigilance, my threat awareness mind just goes through the roof, <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, I can. That guy could possibly be a threat. That person's possibly a threat. You know, and it's just like, all right, I got to get out of here, recharge. Absolutely. Well, I know that you've written one book, um, The Shaprod Chronicles. So talk to me about that. And then in the podcast, I think you did, I listened to was about a year ago. And now you talked about maybe writing one for the average person as well. So talk to me about the one that's already out there. And if you're writing another one. Yeah. So I wrote uh, The Shaprod Chronicles. It's basically uh, chronicles of all of my poetry that I wrote. I, I got into poetry just silently. Um, I would journal a lot when I was in the military and I didn't realize I was writing poems at the time. I just thought I was just writing my thoughts down. Uh, but apparently they flowed into a lot of poetry. So I started breaking them up about a couple years ago and started posting them on a social, on a Instagram. And people were like, Oh man, you should put these into a book and push them out. And like, and then I had a bunch of friends that were, I found a community within on Instagram that were all veterans that were all war poets of sorts. And they had been putting out books. And I was like, oh, maybe I can do one too, you know? So, uh, the strap pod chronicles, the reason why I call it strap pod is because shrapnel, uh, can be wounds. It can be mental or physical wounds that we carry with ourselves. And then the pod being like a small unit or a tribe. And so I kind of just put the two together and just like, oh, that's sounds cool you know at least it sounds cool to me maybe i don't know about that oh well anybody else think it is but who cares um but yeah so i was like okay let's put out my poetry book so i finally got around to it about six months ago and started putting it together and then did self-publish in august uh launched it on amazon and then uh recently did a follow-up book to that uh it's a lot less dark um depressive kind of raw emotions and now it shows kind of a lighter side to my poetry you know when i transition from like going really dark depressive stuff that you know stuff that stemmed from childhood all the way into the war and whatnot and then relationships you know all interact in that too but then now the um, i call it mountains of peace is the second volume that's been out for a little bit now um and it it shows that lighter side. It's a quick book. It's nothing crazy. Uh, it's not long. I think it's actually even shorter than the first one. Um, but yeah, so I launched those and 
you know, they've been doing decent. Uh, but then uh, I uh, decided, I was like, oh, man, you know, I love writing. I love being creative. So let's take some of my security practices and kind of put them into a book. And so uh, I looked through the markets and I looked and I realized there's there's books on cyber. There's books on home security. There's books on you know, executive protection for corporate world and stuff of that nature, but there's not a ton of it. Uh, and I go, but there's also not a ton of books for guys that are on the solo side of just one man, one man team protecting, you know, one principal, two, three, however many. Uh, so I was like, man, this is my world. This is my niche. So I started taking all the articles that I've written on LinkedIn and uh, EP Wired, which is a, a security online security magazine, and started taking all those, and then just started putting them into chapters, and realizing, okay, this is flowing pretty good, you know. So let's just take all the tips and tactics that I use every day with protecting ultra high net worth people, put it into this book form as kind of a guide. Uh, this is what I experienced. Maybe this will help other dudes who are already in the security industry transition into being a solo protector. Um, or maybe they just adapt that to their regular EP teams, you know, with the big corporate team they have. And so launched that in September. Uh, it's called uh, the Protector Series. A guy, the first one is uh, called A Guide to Solo Protection and the Private, Private Family Security. And what's funny is a lot of people hit me up on social media and they're like, oh, man, I'm going to buy your book. You know, I want to learn how to protect my family better. And I had to tell them, like, well, the book's really not for the everyday person. It's more for guys that are already in the industry. But I'm finding out that the first book is being very relatable to people that are just everyday. They're using some of these principles to protect their own families and whatnot. And so I'm like, oh, well, heck, maybe it's uh, hitting both industries or both both sides of it, you know. And then I'm doing a three-book series, essentially. So the second book is more for the average everyday person to learn tips and tactics of what we use in the security world from the high threat to the low threat area um, on how to protect themselves, their families, uh, how to... Uh, hone in on their situational awareness training and uh, listen to their intuition and things of that nature. And then the third book is going to be kind of a, a caveat or like kind of like bring it all together, but also add in like the social media awareness, the cyber side of things, um, learning how to see threats online for parents who don't know that their child's being attacked by a predator online or, you know, just it's going to be a whole mix of things more for family, but it's going to kind of bring the two books together, essentially. Brilliant. No, that sounds amazing. Uh, and, and, I'm work, and I'm working on that second draft right now. So I get writer's block every damn day. <laughs> uh, join the club. Yeah. I was literally yeah, staring at a cursor this morning. <laughs> <laughs> you said about um, the group that were doing poetry. Was that Dead, Dead Reckoning Collective? Yes, it is. It's yeah, I had the lads on the show. Yeah, they're great dudes. I was on there. Uh, we we did live IG with them, uh, the main guy, uh, about I would say about a year or two ago. Um, great dudes, man. I love all those guys, and uh, you know I chat with all them every now and then. So, brilliant, beautiful. All right, well then. 
for people listening, where are the best places to find you on social media? And also, where can they find the books? Uh, so me on social media, you can. I have a couple different ones I use. Uh, the Shrap Pod. Uh, that's where my poetry and stuff of that nature is at. That's on Instagram. Uh, my other Instagram I, is the Real Irish Lad. Uh, that's my personal page. Um, uh, I'm more I'm more active on Instagram than I am anywhere else. Um, Facebook is more personal. I don't really give that out to people. It's just for me to keep after family and see what's going on. You know, friends here and there. Uh, I don't, I'm not super active on it. Uh, LinkedIn. I'm really active on LinkedIn. They can just look up my name, Justin Keating. Um, they, uh, I post a lot of uh, e, what I call EP tips of the day, and it's just like little hem- helpful tips for uh, security practices and things of that nature, which a lot of that's in my first book, so they can get it there if they want to. Uh, but uh, the books, you can get them on Amazon uh, or Barnes & Noble, uh, it's called the Protector Series, um, a guide to solo protection and the private, private family security. Um, and the strap pod books are on Instagram or on, uh, Amazon as well. I think you can get them on Barnes and Nobles as, as well. And there's a few other little online places. Um, but yeah, Amazon's the biggest place to get it. So Beautiful. Well, Justin, I want to say thank you. It's been such an incredible conversation. You got such a storied lifeline, but you said, you know, you didn't speak, you know, about the, for example, the suicide attempt till somewhat recently, these are the conversations that we need to hear. These, you know, I'm going to use air quotes, alphas of the world, you know, military swap, fire, you know, whatever, you know, UFC fighter. When those men and women are vulnerable, it totally debunks the myth that we are this two-dimensional robot that has no feelings and can keep going, as we talked about with the greatest generation. That you hit on this, you know, that there's so much courage in vulnerability. It's far more, you know, brave to tell everyone about your struggles than it is to bury it down and pretend that you're Robocop. So I want to thank you not only for leading us through your, you know, your your career journey, but also for your courageous vulnerability today. Well, I appreciate it, man. I love sharing my story with people uh, in hopes of uh, able to help somebody else out there. You know, a lot of when I write my poetry, I've had people reach out to me that had no combat experience, no military, anything. And they're like, Oh my God, dude, that's what I'm feeling every day. You know, that's how I feel. Like those are the words. And so I'm like, well, my job's done, you know, like I help somebody. Um, so yeah, man, I just, I love enjoying, I love to, uh, talk to people about it and, uh, just, just kind of pay it forward. Hopefully, uh, my story changes someone's life. And not that that's my goal, you know, but, uh, and I don't want the recognition for it. I just want others to feel good about themselves. And if they find a struggle and they're like, oh, well, this guy can get over it. Maybe I can get over it too. You know? Um, so yeah. So I think, yeah, I think it's, you're a lot tougher man if, uh, you can admit your vulnerabilities and your, your, your shortcomings versus, uh, sucking them all away and acting like a hard ass the whole time. So.